last year around this time, I was able to give a New Year's message, and it was on Psalm 90. We, you might remember that. We, and, and if you don't remember it or hadn't heard it, um, we have that on our um, Sojourners webpage if you want to listen back to that. It was a, a song of lament of Moses, and we think it would have been as he was wandering in the wilderness, reflecting on the fleeting human years that one is given, and then trying to worship God in light of God's eternality, his eternal nature. Well, this morning I want to, on some of those doctrines that were from that psalm, Psalm 90, uh, but we won't do it from the perspective of lament. Uh, For this New Year's message, we uh, probably are entering into this room with a bit of lament, some concerns, some complaints, some worries, maybe some anxieties. You might have a concern for this coming year, what your life might look like. What about your job? Will it be in some way affected uh, in some way by the circumstances that are playing out around you? What about your health? Uh, We've had a challenging health year ourselves. What about your home? What about your loved ones? Are there concerns about your church and your church family? Are there concerns about your neighborhood and your neighbors? Are there concerns about your society, your city, your government, the leadership of that government, your world? Are there concerns about your future that you're bringing into this first Lord's Day of 2022? Well, there might be. And if you feel anxious, specifically about the things that you know that you can't control. Just right at the outset, you can make a list of those things that you can control, but it pales in comparison to the list of the things that you can't. And if this brings you a certain level of anxiety, then I would say, on the one hand, join the crowd. At the same time, I would say that's sinful. And we need a higher view of God as we come into this new year. We need a bigger vision of God because we have increasing problems. And they seem to stack, and they seem to grow and mount. And they can become so big that they fill our entire frame. And we need to look higher. We need to have a higher vision of God than we currently do, especially if we're facing some of these concerns. Philippians 4.6 says, Be anxious for nothing, because anxiety is sin but we are surrounded by real circumstances. And so the only way through this, the only way over these hurdles of life, as it were, especially those that we can't even imagine, is to lift our eyes even higher and look to God. The future is in God's hands. So I want to help you today to deepen your conviction that you can trust God with your future and with your 2022. And you might need to deepen your trust in God this very week, and so I think it's a timely word, and I hope that this deep dive will help. So we want to look at the perfections of God, these divine characteristics that couldn't be any higher, any more excellent than as they're found in God. And we want to look at his eternal, independent nature in order to have this view of God as immovable, impenetrable, unshakable in the face of all that we face. So uh, let me put up the outline here, and you'll see as we talk about depending on the independent one, there are really two main points, but it's the first one that is going to consume most of our time. 
and it's that God is independent from us. And you say, well, how does that help me? Well, it helps us have the big view of God that we need so that we can get to point two, but not in some pragmatic, God is my celestial Santa Claus here to help me get through my troubles. No, we're going to raise our eyes, see God as he's presented in scripture, specifically about his independence, so that when we get to point two, which we can, I'm sure at that point, just really wrap up together, then we can see that we must depend on this independent one. So the main points for point number one is that God is self-existent. We want to look at that doctrine first. The second is that God is eternal, which of course plays into that. And then third might be a new term for you. God is pure actuality. And so we'll talk about that. It sounds like little theological language, but you'll see how it all flows into this idea of God being independent from all that he has created. And so we'll come to those things at that fourth point of the first major point. So I'm excited to go through this with you. And when we talk about God as independent, we really do need to track very well on these three core doctrines and then see how they connect so that we can respond in a way that really would show that we do depend on him who is independent of us. So let me put up the first slide and just guide you through with a working definition. You're going to need this. Whether you write it down or you just pay attention, you will understand it. But let me give you a definition of independence that's going to help us as we start thinking about how to depend more on God. It's that God, who created all things, including time, does not rely on anything outside of himself to exist for his existence because he is always perfectly himself in every way. He's always perfectly himself. God is perfectly independent of what he has created. Now, that doesn't strike you as odd. It just might be a bunch of kind of phrases put together, but we're going to break this down because if we can't hold on to this, we will never depend on him, not in the way that he would consider faithful. So the first doctrine that we'll look at for his independence is his self-existence. Now, you see it word in parentheses there, aseity. Aseity is uh, really just borrowing from the Latin the idea of unto, to, or for himself, ase in the Latin. So the idea of self-existence is that God is perfectly self-sufficiently unto himself. He is the eternal foundational being. He controls everything, and everything that is created exists because he is the source of it, and God himself needs no creating whatsoever. There's no adjusting, no tweaking that needs to occur for God to be in his perfect sense, in his perfect essence. His nature needs no development at all, no change in God. And because he created all things, then he's the absolute being. He's not conditioned, he's not dependent on anything outside of himself, and that's what we mean when we say that he is self-existent. It's to say that he is self-sufficient in every possible way. Well, this is where we need to dive into scripture to support a statement like this. So we're not just throwing out theological opinions. Let's see what scripture has to say. So first off, I'm going to just let you know we're going to flip pretty quickly. So I don't know how many thumbs you have, depending, or, or maybe how many are going to scroll through your screen. But 
I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, and I hope that this will help us to really root ourselves in his independence. Specifically right now, we start with his self-existence. So the, the passage that you probably know right off the top of your head is Exodus 3. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. That's a great starting place for understanding that God exists as he has always existed, and he's the cause of all existence. In Exodus 3, 14 and 15, uh, it says that God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15 goes on to say, this is my name forever. This is my memorial name from generation to generation. Now, a New Testament complement to Exodus 3, 14 and 15, this I am who I am. I see some of you already flipping to it. You know where I'm going. It's John chapter 1. John 1, verses 3 to 4. This adds to the description of God's self-existence and his perfect sufficiency to call all things to exist out of the abundance of his life. First John 3 and 4 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. If you move ahead in John chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus declares himself to be this self-existing God who has life in himself. So now it's not just God in a general sense, although no matter how you talk about God, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, you'll always be right that he's self-existent. But now Jesus applies this to himself in John 5, 26. It says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And so then Paul will work with that in 1 Corinthians 8.6 to say that there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So this idea of self-existence is absolutely Trinitarian, and it's unmistakable from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So what could we just say as a quick ultimate conclusion, just to even this first point, just to move through what you're already seeing here. It's that God exists in such a way that perfectly satisfies him. If he weren't satisfied by who he is, by his sufficient uh, nature of being life-giving, then he would need another God to come alongside him and make him something better. God doesn't need any developing. There's no sense of adding to God to make him more able to help, more life-giving. We see that life is already part of who he is. So God exists in such a way that perfectly satisfies him. He is self-sufficient in himself. And a second point here, just to conclude on self-existence, is that God's self-existence is perfectly sufficient not only for his own life, but to be able to, out of the overflow of it, to give life to all of creation. And we see him do that right from Genesis 1.1, that at this point of his perfect sovereign decree, he begins to create. And how much strength does he have to muster up in order to create? None whatsoever, because it's already there absolutely, perfectly self-sufficient in his creative power. And so at the decided time in his own mind, he creates. So this leads us then, if self-existence is pretty clear and aseity is 
a fancy term for something that you're just seeing right from Scripture, old to new, then it leads in to the second point, that God is eternal. God is eternal. So this is the second doctrine of interest, and it's God's eternal nature. When you put these doctrines together, self-sufficiency and his eternal nature, then you come up with this very simple description. It's that God existed before all things, and through him alone all things exist. It's a bit of a spin on what we've already just seen. Now, to say that God is eternal is very much just what is already said we, in the first verse of Scripture, Genesis 1.1. And so the scriptural support, it goes so deep, but it's right there in the first phrase of Scripture. I want to give you a few different statements that are going to help us understand some of the dimensions that Scripture gives us about God's eternal nature. But the caveat, of course, is that we can understand very little of what it means that God exists eternally because we exist temporally. We exist within the time that he created, right? So for us even to say, oh, we can exhaust our biblical knowledge of the eternality of God is still to say very little. And we're just scratching at the surface of what it could possibly mean that God exists eternally. But praise God that he's given so much scripture so that at least when we scratch, we're, we're digging up gold, we're automatically understanding something about his eternal nature of which we can understand very little. So do this deep dive with me, and I think you'll benefit from these types of statements. I don't have these on the screen, but you can follow along. First off, for God to be eternal is to say that he lives forever. God lives forever. Very simple. Deuteronomy 32.40 says, Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever. This is God... uh, by the, the, the sheer force of his own name, swearing on his own name, recognizing that he cannot betray himself. He lives forever. This is just simple fact. Uh, Revelation 10.6 uh, says that uh, he lives forever and ever and created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. And this idea of his creation flows out of his eternal nature. Because at a chosen beginning point, he began. He started time. Revelation 15, 7 uh, talks about the four living creatures. And one of the four living creatures says in this verse, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. We always see this description associated with God in his extreme power and his supremacy over all things. The one who makes judgments is the one who created. He's the one who exists forever. And so Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. How much more eternal can you be than to recognize that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, was preexistent, came in the incarnation, now lives forever. Yes, he has taken on human flesh, as we talked about a couple weeks ago. But the idea is, in his eternal nature, there has been no change because he is eternal. That's Hebrews 13.8. Well, a second point about his eternality is to say that he is God from everlasting to everlasting. Really, ultimately the same thing, but you could drop back into the psalm we did from last year, Psalm 90, 
Verses 1 and 2 say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Think of the passing of time and how God is always able to sustain and protect and provide uh, for those that experience development of time. Verse 2 says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And the power of this God is not just in his creative works. It is not just in his sustenance of of humanity and creation. It's in his absolute authority to reign where no one else can. Psalm 93.2 says, your throne is established from of old. Psalm 93.2, you are from everlasting. And your throne has always been established. There is no rival to your authority. Well, a third point about his eternal nature that can help us just set our eyes a little bit higher is that he will endure forever. God will endure forever. Psalm 102, 25 to 27 is helpful here. I'll read Psalm 102, these these verses. Of Of old you founded the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Do you see how pervasive in Scripture is this, this retelling of his creative work? And to, to say that it may have been an ancient act of creation, but to him it was just the beginning at a time when the ancient one decided to create. Verse 26, even they will perish, but you, that he is incorruptible and immortal. He's incorruptible and he's immortal. And we need him to be everlasting in that sense. Not one who is just decaying for all eternity, just the graph that starts to go down to an infinite zero that is never touched. We need one in the height of his power who has established his throne from eternity past and continues uncorrupted because he is incorruptible. We need him to never die, which is what scripture tells us because he is immortal. Romans one twenty three tells us this, that humans have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and other things. This is what idolatry does. But here's a statement of God as incorruptible, very much different than those other lesser gods that people worship. 1 Timothy 6.16 talks about God who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. And it's to him that must go all honor and it says eternal might. And that is to the praise of his glorious eternal nature. Well, with this, we could make even more statements just to kind of belabor the point for our own good. And another one would be that the number of his years cannot be discovered. The number of the years of God cannot be discovered. What total do you get when you add eternity past to eternity future and you stick in several thousand years in between? Can you calculate that? Even if you call him the ancient one because you're seeing him in view of his, uh, his work in creation up till now, you would already say that's an innumerable amount of years. But when you add the impossible, then you'll never get an answer. Well, Job has much to say on this. Job 36, verse 26. Behold, God is exalted, and we do not know him. The number of his years is unsearchable. 
truly unsearchable. You add eternity past to eternity future, stick however many years you want in between, you'll never get an answer. That's the life of God. See, these are those indescribable mysteries. We, we really can't dig any further than just these types of expressions and make any sense of it. Um, another is that uh, another statement here about his eternal nature is that he is, he was, and he is to come. Of course, we know that this is what you would expect of an eternal God who is unchanging. It's that the one that we see in the beginning, in our beginning, is the one that has always been before there was time. And he is the one that will be with us as we live out our days in eternity future. We will never see any change with him. And again, that's really Exodus 3, the I am who I am, who sent you, I am an active, present, continual existence to God. There are several other passages, of course, we go through, and several other statements. Uh, But what I'm going to do is just move forward to a a basic conclusion about this doctrine of God's eternal nature. Well, it's clear from Scripture that God is eternal, isn't it? And he gives us so many verses that help us to really understand that he is timeless. Uh, But, of course, we just can't understand that inconceivable mystery and go beyond what Scripture portrays. But the portrayal, at least we could make a summary statement, this would be mine, that God is elevated above all temporal limits. God is elevated above all temporal limits. He's not bound by a series of moments. Our lives are bound by a series of moments. We live in a succession of moments along this film strip of our lives. We have the ticking clocks. We have the rotation of the earth. We have ways to measure time. But God is outside of that. He's eternal. This is a God without beginning, without ending, and without any succession of moments in his conscious experience of himself and of all things around him. And so this is part of how we need to lift our eyes above everything that plagues us today and see him ultimately outside of that to the praise and glory of God. Well, uh, a third then doctrine that I think will really help us to understand God as independent from his creation is this doctrine of pure actuality, pure actuality. So another way to say that God eternally self-exists is to say that he exists, and this is the key idea here, in one singular present moment, perfectly as himself without any duration of time. God is who he is in the fullest sense at all times, with no possibility of development or change to his being. So we're just hitting this independent nature of God from yet another angle. And so we're going to use this term pure actuality. It can also be called pure act. And from the Latin, it's actus purus. If you're in a seminary setting, you're going to run across this. We write journal articles about this. We, we try and delve into um, traditional evangelical theological discussions and constructs about what it means for God to exist in one unending moment. But again, what are we doing? We're just scratching the surface, thankful that we have any scripture that can help us understand 
in this descriptive way something about God's infinitely independent nature. Well, here are some ways that we could describe pure actuality and and see this as part and parcel with everything that you've already seen about God's eternal nature and his independence, his self-sufficient self-existence. And so here are some expressions I would give you that God is eternal and outside of our series of moments, that's what we've already said, he's not bound to our film strip of a life. Our frame-by-frame existence is for him purely ours and not his. God exists outside of time itself. He interacts with it, but he exists outside of it. And I think that's sufficiently clear if we're talking about him being eternal. He's not bound by time because there is no intrinsic time in God himself. And think about why that is. Time is a physical law that he created when? In the in the beginning. That is when time starts, just like all things start. What does time do? It measures a duration. It's the passing of time that we actually call time. It's, it's how we determine something being young versus something being older than young, right? Something going on in its development. It is a measurement of development. And time obviously can't have anything to do with God because he doesn't develop. He's independent from anything that could mark progress in him. But we progress. Whether we like it or not, this is 2022. Whether we like it or not, tomorrow's Monday. And we know what that means for a lot of people. Going back to work. We measure the passage of time, and we call that time. But with God existing as pure act, in pure actuality, this is to say that God can be with time, with us in our time, but it doesn't bind him. So there's no passage of time in God. There is no time in God. For him, pure act is to say that there's one indivisible present, one present and continuous moment of life for God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what that means for God to be so far outside of time that for him to interact with us in time is him inserting himself to interact with what he has created. But it has no actual binding on him himself. The process of, of living is not the kind of experience that he has. We possess time because we live within it in our existence. But God possesses the whole of his existence without any lapse of time, completely as one pure act, one pure conscious active moment. And so this doctrine of pure actuality can help us frame the idea that God exists exactly the same as he always has. Just as he was, he is, and he will forever be. Why? Because God is always God. It is we who develop. Age to age, throughout the universal timeline, although we call him the ancient one, it is because, like Job, we cannot calculate his years. Another way to say that is, he doesn't have years. God is not bound 
by years. So when we talk about him in terms of years, that's an anthropomorphism, isn't it? It's us assigning something human to a non-human, to something that otherwise is hard to express. Think about that. God has an infinite and incalculable amount of years precisely because he has none. He's outside of time. It's not kind of a wild concept, but it's important for us. I want to give you a few verses that help you, of course, to understand pure act and make sure we're not just doing some kind of Latin theologian thing. Uh, But let me give it to you under some statements. Again, I'm going to give you some statements. They're not up on the screen, so you'll have to write these down if you'd like them. Um, So scriptural support under a few statements. First, God's essence is forever unchanged, eternally existing as he actually is. God's essence is forever unchanged, eternally existing as he actually is. And you already have the passage for this. Exodus 3, 14 and 15. I am who I am. Verse 15, this is my name forever my memorial name from generation to generation. He's just really dialing us in on his uh, pure actuality. Uh, Now, to talk about his essence being forever unchanged, we also want to say that God existed perfectly before creating anything. And you would expect that when you read Genesis 1.1 because he has the creative power. He's already perfectly self-sufficient in order to do creation. Uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 is helpful here. It says, For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is perfect in his existence because he's pure act. There is no change in God, and so what is expressed in time may have its developments, but it's purely out of his will that it exists the way it does, and it is in a perfect, perfect existence as God wants it to then develop over time. And Jesus describes his own preexistent eternal glory. Before his crucifixion in John 17, the upper room discourse, John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And after his resurrection, to John, he writes in Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's what we would expect because Jesus Christ is God and he is pure act. And again, another idea here on his perfect existence before creating anything is that you couldn't calculate his age going back into eternity past. So again, this is where you would see Psalm 90 uh, and specifically verse 4 that, that uses the expression that a thousand years is like a day to God. And in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, 8, wants to frame our understanding of how to deal with life in all of its dimensions, all of its afflictions, and all of its relationships. And so he repeats from Psalm 90 in 2 Peter 3, 8, a thousand years is like a day to God. And why would that be? Why, why even delve into this anthropomorphism? 
Well, it's because God exists in one pure moment. And I, to even say moment, I'm borrowing from a time reference. He exists in one eternal act, just God. He's outside of time, looking in, as it were. Another anthropomorphism, because how can we understand these things? But it's one singular act with which he experiences immediately all things. The one who is and the one who, uh, who was, the one who will be, is always the same God. Eternally self-existent and self-sufficient in it, life-giving in that. And so in this sense, he looks into our film strip of time. A thousand years is like a day. A day could be like a thousand years. All he has to do is zoom in. His perspective on things is not something that we've ever experienced. It's very hard to understand that, except that Scripture gives us at least that much to grab onto. Can that help you in this new year? Can it help you to look at the trials you're going to have the rest of the day or as you come into Monday? Can it help you to see God independent from the hours and the minutes of struggle that you face. The trouble is, sometimes people say, well, then that's where God is so unlike me. How could he ever really be with me? Or why would he care if he exists outside of all things? Well, we need to talk about that too. But if we could conclude a little bit about this pure actuality of God, I would say this, that Everything is immediately and continually consciously experienced by God. Everything. Uh, From creation to eternity future. So any mention of time in relation to God is really just for our human vantage point. It's the best that we can do. And you can appreciate how from God's eternal perspective, although he's distinct from time because he's not in it, bound by it for his existence. He's distinct, but he's not so separated that he doesn't care. He's present with us. And this is ultimately the point. With every moment of our time, we can look and find God acting. We can always find God who is eternally active, eternally himself, intersecting each moment in our time. Let me ask you a question. Is there any place that God cannot be found? Psalm 139. If I were to go to the heights of heaven, if I were to go to the depths of the sea, behold, you are there. Where can I go from your spirit? Psalm 139.7. So let me ask you then this. Is there, if we talk about the dimension of time, is there any time that God has not been there? alongside you? Is there any time that you have existed and God has not existed? Or that if we could see in a, with spiritual eyes that God wasn't there? No, God is always everywhere all the time, and he chooses to be present with mankind. This is unbelievable. This is truly incredible. Well, On the one hand, you see that God creates time and he upholds everything by the totality of his power. On the other hand, we recognize that he's 
fully present in every moment of time because he's created us and he desires to interact with his creation. He knows everything in its entirety, not simply because he's overseeing everything. He's not like the deists would say. This is kind of ancient heresies that he, he winds the clock and then he lets all the parts just do their own thing and he steps back transcendently, enjoying his cloud, enjoying the, the angels blessing him and he couldn't care less about humanity. No, that's not God. He chooses to be present in every moment of our time every way with us. He knows us in our entirety because he spends every millisecond with us. Now, this is truly incomprehensible. How can he be everywhere and outside of everywhere and yet here, right here with me? And this points to other doctrines, the way we could develop it further that he is immense, that he fills all spaces. Yes, Scripture says he inhabits his holy hill, but he fills everything by the very fact that he is supreme, that, that we actually exist within his reality. Our film strip of life is within the greater reality of a God who has created. But, but for us, staying on the theme of his eternal nature and time. I give you 1 Timothy 1.17. 1 Timothy 1.17 expresses both this reality of being outside of time and within uh, our experience of time, not bound by it, but experiencing or, or allowing us to experience and being present with us. And it's the simple phrase in 1 Timothy 1.17, easy to miss, He is king of the ages. He is king of the ages. He's not subject to time, but he uses time as his servant. To do what? To cause us to glorify him as the king of the ages. To cause everything to work together according to his perfect plan in every millisecond, beyond what you could even imagine, the infinitesimally small units of time that you don't even calculate that there are not enough frames on the highest definition camera to even capture. And he's the king of the ages. He controls them. He is the Lord over all. And so when you put pure actuality within this framework of God's independence, then certainly seeing his self-existence, seeing his eternal nature, by all accounts, there's no mistaking that God is all in all that he is Lord supreme over all time, and he exists outside of it. But pure actuality does help us to somehow grasp what we can of his experience of time outside, and yet uh, being so present with us. Well, what I want to do then is look at some connections. Let's put all of these doctrines together. Here are four points that I want you to have a look at. Now, don't forget the goal of all of this. We, we need to understand the God who is totally independent of us is calling us to depend on him. 
He has no reason to depend on us. We have every reason to depend on him. Depending on the independent one. So because God is self-existent in one eternal moment, self-sufficiently, the giver of life who loses nothing by giving, and who in and of himself gains nothing by giving, then we can see in Scripture these four statements bear out in truth. So the first statement is that God needs nothing but all things depend on him. We'll elaborate that with a few more verses. Secondly, that God, who is the source of everything, is Lord of all. Third, that God always accomplishes his will. Always. Fourthly, that God does everything for his own sake. So the first point, he needs nothing being all sufficient, but all things depend on him. Just a couple verses here. I think it would be helpful for you to see Acts 17, how Paul then has to interact with a bunch of pagan idolaters in Athens that are running around making sacrifices, building altars, and, and, uh, and all of these temples and all of these rituals constructing, trying to get the gods uh, happy with them, trying to get them content by human means, for human gain. And how does Paul in 17, 24, and 25 respond to them about the one true God? This is the ultimate confrontation. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. How much clearer can you be? The independent, eternal God does not need us. He does not need us. Romans eleven thirty six says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To peace. For him to have full joy. For him to experience love. He does not need his creation in order to be called the God who is love. What does all of this mean then for us? Well, first off, that God doesn't look to us to learn anything new. God doesn't somehow need to draw from us to become more of himself. And there are people out there, if you've heard of open theism, it's this idea that God is just as surprised as you are with the future. But he's got these really amazing, like infinitely brilliant ways to navigate through these problems. And pastors then... Uh, who buy into this have a real hard time explaining to families that lose a loved one uh, that that God was surprised, but he's going to try and get you through it the best way that God could. No, this is insufficient thinking. This is just absolute, ultimately, it's beyond error. This is just heresy. Now, another thing, if, if God doesn't look to us in order to learn anything, then the opposite must be true, that God would have us look to him to become more like him. And that's the point. The creation, the creature must look to the creator who created him and strive to be like him. That's what Pastor John's saying, the obsession of sanctification. So we know that God wants us to praise him. See, here's the conundrum though, right? And we need to ascribe glory to his name. But let me ask you this, God who is independent in every way, when you praise him, does that make him more glorious? Does Does it add to his glory? Does he develop more the more you praise him? 
If not, we might as all as well just follow false religions where all you do is try and add worship to false gods so that maybe if they become more powerful on your behalf, they can give you what you want. It's completely wrong thinking. He already has inherently with himself all the glory. It's the idea of worship is to ascribe worth to him, to ascribe glory, to proclaim his glory back to him. The ultimate recognition from the heart that he is glorious. Well, a second point here is that God, who is the source of everything then, must be declared Lord of all. Deuteronomy 32, 39 says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Deuteronomy 32, 39. Isaiah 45 will continue that as well. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The one forming light, creating darkness, producing peace and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these. Is there any other way to see this eternal God, this one that we see so independent of us, to see him as anything less than Lord of all? Can you imagine how loathsome, how abysmal is this idea that we could be the masters of our own fate, we can be the captains of our own destiny? We make the decisions. Just look back at the list of what you control and what you don't. No, you need the God who is not bound by your powers. The God who is infinitely more able to overcome your temporal problems than you could even imagine because we can't even describe his eternal existence. That's the God who must be Lord of your life. To deny him that lordship in your life is ultimately sin. It's the hard expression of every person that lives in rebellion against God. I'm God, not him. Capital G, lowercase g, doesn't matter. The declaration is idolatrous. Now, you know, professing believers can do this too. He can have all of my life except this sin. He can control me uh, all during the week, especially Sunday, not Saturday night. He can have all of my time except for this. He can have all of my relationships and help me renew all of these things, but not those. It's, It's this capping off of what God can do that shows that he's not the Lord of your life. And I wonder if sometimes our anxieties are purely that. That we, we've flip-flopped what's on the list. We, we have this idea that we can control more than we can. And so we just wrongly assume that we're Lord over this, this, and this. But he's the Lord over all these other things. We will always be proved wrong. It's the wrong sense of control. A third point here is that God always accomplishes his will. Well, we would need a full Sunday just to go into a study on God's will What does it mean that he has made an eternal decree and he sticks by everything that he has said? But let me just give some guiding statements to make this a bit quick. The first guiding statement about God's will and how he accomplishes is that that he determines everything according to his eternal decree. 
He determines everything according to his eternal decree. Scripture teaches us that he acts according to his own pleasure. And why not? Everything emanates from him. Everything will be glorious when it's according to his purposes. There's no stain of sin whatsoever. There's no ability that his purposes could be in any way less than glorious, majestic, perfect, and ultimately in control. Psalm 115.3 says, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And no one can prevent him from that. Can we? We're the creatures. And he is outside, independent of all of that. No international ruler, no local leader can in any way challenge God's plans. Proverbs 21.1, you know this well. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. How much does a ruler actually rule? Isn't that the question? Daniel 4.25, as Daniel is given insights into the kingdom of God throughout the book, says the most high is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. All authority is established by the king of the ages. We need to understand this. Another statement here would be that his counsel, what he has eternally decreed, what has always been in his mind and poured out in perfect time in the sovereign control of our film strip, his counsel is the basis of everything. Psalm 33, 11 says, the counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The thoughts of his heart from Genesis. He doesn't owe you any explanation. He doesn't owe me any reasons why I face the trials that I face. He doesn't have to explain why he's doing things in 2022 that perhaps he didn't even do last year or why he did last year things he didn't do before that or the year before that. Why are we in the predicaments that we're in? Does he owe you any explanation? No, he doesn't. Job 33.13, Elihu responds well to Job and he says, why do you contend against him? And we're talking about Job here, the epitome of suffering. Why do you contend against him? For he does not give an answer for all his doings. And that's absolutely right. Isaiah 29, 16 reverberates a refrain that will then be picked up in Romans 9. And you, you'll understand this. Isaiah 29, 16. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? that what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me. Or what I formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Why did he make me that way? Why is he doing this thing in me? Why is he crafting me this way? Ah, who's the potter? And who's the clay? That's Paul's point in Romans 9. See that from verses 16 to 21. It's just in the face of God's sovereign choice, even over who to save. This idea comes back that that none of the choices of God depend on any person that receives his answer. All solutions have been worked out in the mind of God in a perfect way. There's no plan B. There is what the potter has determined to produce, and he will always accomplish it. That's the point. Well, there would be so much more to say about the will of God. 
But doesn't this point to the fourth idea here, that God does everything for his own sake? He wants to be glorified. And the glory rests with him. And the glory is his. Everything ultimately depends on him because he has independently, self-sufficiently in every respect done everything. We do see this, right? Here's a passage to help on this. Ezekiel 20. I'll just give you a few verses from Ezekiel 20. Listen to verse 9. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom Israel lived. And he'll go on, verse 14, same thing. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. And on and on, verse 22, I acted, I, but I turned back my hand and acted for the sake of my name. Verse 44, then you will know that I am Yahweh. When I have dealt with you for your sake, for my name's sake. This is God speaking. God, the independent one. You depend on him. That's the point. I hope you see how incredible it is that we, his creatures, would become the beneficiaries of all of his wondrous acts, no less salvation. But we can so easily slip into this idea that we are at the center of his will. That we are his ultimate targeted focus of all things. No, he is for the sake of his name, his glory, and everything points back up to him. So the second point, we won't get into it except to just read off a little bit to you. God wants us to depend on him. This must be true of you. This is your New Year's resolution, to depend on the independent one. Because after all, God sustains everyone and everything. That's Paul's message to these pagan idolaters. He's the one, Acts 14, that that provides the rain for your enjoyment, for your harvests, for everything that you have, even though you don't serve him and you don't know him and you don't love him. God pours out. Can you imagine just the incredible desire of this perfect God who exists outside of our film strip of life? And yet he inserts himself beyond just the frames of the milliseconds, completely blessing us in good ways. And how much more does he bless those that he is redeeming? He extends mercy, which goes way beyond just sustenance. He extends mercy toward those whom he is redeeming. Mercy then becomes that counterbalance to his independence, doesn't it? That's Isaiah 57.15. You need to hear this. Isaiah 57.15. He who lives forever as high, as holy, high, and lofty also lives with those who are contrite and lowly in spirit. Can you have to be true? This is inconceivable that God would pour out anything toward us, especially living with us in this mercy. And so... We need to understand that as we come through. And so this is the final point. I'll just rattle these off. How should we depend on him? How will you respond to this independent God? Well, first, you need to repent of your low view of God. He has been for too long, for many of us, 
myself included at times, insufficiently low, as if he could not overcome my hurdles. But he's Lord of all. And you also need to repent of any idolatrous view of God, where he exists to do your bidding, where he exists to give you present after present after present. That celestial Santa Claus, that's not God. Go back to scripture, repent. But then with that, Isaiah 57, 15. And so humble yourself, be contrite, and you'll find God there. Where can I flee from your spirit? Thirdly, cast your cares upon God through Christ. Who has the heavy shoulders here? Christ says that he does. Cast your cares on him. Peter says, John in 1 John 5 says, the commandments of God are not burdensome. Why? Because who shoulders your troubles truly? The independent one, the one that isn't bogged down by them. And so as you go through your troubles today, tomorrow, 2022, on and on and on in every dimension, recognize that your troubles are best left at the feet of Jesus, who will take them and put them on his shoulders. And fourthly, live in light of eternity. Uh, it's, it's been said, Joe and I were joking about this, that um, you know we make our five-year plans, our 10-year plans, but let me ask you, believer, here today, what's your 20,000-year your 20, plan? <laughs> what's your 20-million-year plan? When you're glorified, when you're walking with him, when you're learning even more about the independent one who now shows you even more ways with glorified eyes in heaven, moment after moment in your film strip of a never-ending life, he shows you how to glorify him more. Can you trace that back in some way? Capture the imaginative idea of that for today. Say, I want to know God more now. That's what Jesus says in John 17, to know him is eternal life. Get to know him, the eternal one, today. Well, we truly are out of time. But I invite you to pray and, and take some of this high view, even now, as you pray, and bring it into the lowliness of your temporal existence, even in this moment. Let's pray to the Lord. To you, our eternal God, we join the psalmist of Psalm 138 who expresses this trust that we have in you. He says, Yahweh will accomplish what concerns me. Lord, we so easily fail in our trust. So help us with everything that we've seen about your glorious eternal nature to depend more on you, the independent one. Lord, I pray that this would be part of our resolution for this new year, that we would bury our heads deeper in Scripture and lift our eyes higher toward you, to have a biblical vision of your self-existence in your eternal moment. Lord, may we deepen our wonder at your great mercy toward us. Lord, we're, we're frail as grass, but Lord, we ask you to help us to seek to live you even now, to, to live out this reality of your grace, your mercy, that we might depend on you. 
with a grace that is so abundant toward us. Through Christ who makes this possible, we pray. Amen.